News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Boy, what a busy couple of days we are seeing in Ottawa this week, and there is more to come. Didn't take long for the Prime Minister to fill the seat of outgoing Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Let's get caught up to date now with the help of our Global News Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken. Good morning, David. Yeah, good morning, Simi. I was on summer holiday, and I came back to work oh, on Monday, no. and my gosh... <laughs> Yeah, it's been a bit busy. Well, you're not allowed to go again on summer holiday, clearly. Uh, let's, no. let's talk about what happened uh, yesterday with the Prime Minister's press conference and the proroguing of Parliament. What does that mean? Yeah, sure. So proroguing of Parliament is essentially shutting Parliament down, suspending Parliament. And it's, it's, a, it's a procedure that's been you know used a lot over the years and essentially allows a government to give themselves a reset. And, and they give it a reset in the form of a speech from the throne. That's what opens up every parliamentary session, either right after an election or, in this case, after a proroguing. And we heard a lot from the Prime Minister yesterday about what this speech from the throne is going to be all about. It's going to be all about quote, build better. And we've heard this term from a lot of progressive politicians, particularly the Democrats in the U.S., using this idea, we're not just going to build back to where we were before the uh, COVID-19 uh, recession, depression, whatever you want to call it. We're going to build better. And so the, the PM sketching out one of the build better themes is it's going to be a green economy. Now, there's a lot of folks in BC, I know, a green economy. Yes, absolutely. Let's mm -hmm. do that. I know the premier would be thrilled about that. They may not be so thrilled on the other side of the Rockies in Alberta and Saskatchewan to hear that. I'll be very interested to hear what the reaction is there. But that is the purpose of the, the of a proroguing. Now, politically, there's some other issues here because, as I mentioned, Parliament essentially gets shut down. So there were some bills, some legislation before the House of Commons. Those are dead. Uh, they can be reintroduced starting from ground zero. But more importantly, there were several House of Commons committees that were investigating this whole we charity matter. And those investigations, kaput, they're done. Committees cannot meet. They can't call witnesses, take testimony while Parliament is prorogued. Now, Trudeau could have prorogued, say, on September 21st, then brought people back on September 23rd. But instead, it's yeah. shut down now, all the way to the 23rd. And that has the opposition howling. Andrew Scheer, in his last week as opposition leader, I should point out, he called this disgusting. This is That's his phrase. And he says it was done precisely by the prime minister to avoid, quote, in, you know, an investigation into the PM's corruption. That's that's the Oof. opposition leader. Okay. And so the, the opposition w was howling about that one. So does that put an end to these committees permanently? Can they be restarted? Do they have to start all over again? How does that work? They have to, they sort of have to start all over again. Now, the, it's, it's a minority parliament, which means the opposition has the majority on all these committees. So when they do start up again after the 23rd, there is nothing to stop these committees from saying, okay, hold on, we've still got questions about this wee thing and we want to hear more about it. They're perfectly able to do that. But one of the big wild cards, though, in the meantime, as I mentioned, it's Andrew Shears last week. Yeah. We're going to have a new conservative leader on the weekend. Uh, McKay, O'Toole, Leslie Lewis, who knows who it's going to be, but I'm certain that that particular leader is going to have some ideas about, A, what, what you want to do in your parliamentary strategy, and then, B, does that conservative leader want to have an election? Because a speech from the throne 
produces a confidence vote. In fact, the prime minister wants a confidence vote. He wants essentially to get an endorsement for his, quote, green economy, build better recovery plan. He wants parliament's approval. Um, what will that conservative leader do? Is that the time to try and convince the Bloc Québécois and the NDP to say, that's it, it's the end of this government, let's have an election? We don't know. My suspicion, if I was had to bet at this point, when you heard all these phrases about an equitable uh, uh, recovery, a green recovery, etc., it's a pretty progressive agenda. And I think Trudeau's looking straight at Jagmeet Singh and the NDP and saying, you guys are coming with us. We're going to build better, and you're going to love it. And that is the all the parliamentary support he need to survive a confidence vote. So there's going to be a lot of politicking over the next month. And to me, it's, it was a busy two days. It's going to be a busy end of the summer well, as we watch all these pieces sort of move around. Well, it's a good thing you've already had your vacation then, David. Thanks so much for your time on this this yes. morning. Okay, no problem. Cheers. That's David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Yes, there is a lot more to come, as David outlined there. Proroguing a parliament, a big new, almost like a green deal. It's the phrase that they use in the United States, but it sounds very similar to what the Prime Minister was talking about. Kind of a reshaping now of the economy moving forward to get people back to work. Also, having a new finance minister who everybody says he's got a better rapport with. We're going to see how all of this shakes out. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there's been some discussion about the increasing number of COVID-19 cases in BC and whether or not it is the dreaded second wave or are we still in the first wave. It, it does feel like a second wave, but it actually isn't there yet. That's what we wanted to talk about this morning. Jason Tetro joins us now, infectious disease expert, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast as well. Good morning, Jason. Oh, good morning. So you, do you think we're in a second wave? No, uh, we're still in the first wave. We were doing so good. We were actually getting ourselves down below that 60% of getting back to regular uh, or usual contact. And, well, unfortunately, as what tends to happen, um, people either got fatigued or they got overconfident or they just simply didn't care. And we started seeing those um, uh, contact percentages increase. And as we've been warned by Dr. Henry for months now, the minute it starts getting above that 65%, boom, you start seeing those rising cases. So we're still in the same wave. It's just that we're getting around uh, to, to seeing everybody again. And unfortunately, we're sort of paying the, the cost. Right. So what does that mean then for the real second wave? Well, what's going to have to happen first is we're just going to have to get rid of the first wave, right? I mean, uh, the second wave is being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, which is, you know, in one way, a good thing. But in another way, it's not that great because we're having to now still deal with, you know, this first wave. We were so close. I mean, <laughs> we're a couple of weeks ago, we were at a point where it looked like it was being eliminated from the British Columbia landscape. And unfortunately, it's, you know, we're, well, we're no real different than a lot of other places in the world. And we have seen this in Italy. We've seen this in the Far East. And unfortunately, it's happening here. And well, we just got to get back to normal. We even saw this in Wuhan this week, right? That video. I don't know if you saw the video. Oh, people at the pool party, thousands of people jam packed together. I thought, OK, so even in Wuhan, they must be, you know, feeling like they want to socialize. They're tired of this, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And remember one thing, okay? We're hearing about all the millions of cases and all the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are possibly dying off, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is, is that when Wuhan had it for the amount of time that it did, it was only a, a couple thousand cases here and there. And the death rate was, I mean, it was still like SARS, but they pretty much stamped it out. 
And so here we are numerous months later after they've pretty much gotten rid of it from their uh, entire environment while the rest of the world is suffering. Of course, we're going to look at Wuhan and say, whoa, my goodness, what is going on there? Now, if they start to see a spike, then obviously they did a really bad job, but they essentially have felt that they are similar to, you know, New Zealand and to Iceland where they feel that it's, it's gone. So why not? Let's do this. Is it a mistake? We'll find out in about 10 days. Okay, so the real second wave, when it does come, we talked to Adrian Dix about this yesterday as well, is it will be combined, unfortunately, with flu and cold season. That's if we get rid of the first wave before flu shows up, which I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, we were there. Uh, but now we're at a point where we're seeing rises in cases and we're rehumping, if you will, in terms of the uh, number of cases that are showing up in British Columbia. And so what may end up happening is that we're going to be maintaining that rise that none of us really want just as we're starting to get into that cold and flu season. Now, the thing is, is that if people go and get that flu vaccine, it's going to definitely help us not have sort of, you know, a hump on top of a hump. But at the end of the day, we know that there's a lot of people who simply are not going to get the vaccine. Uh, Now, what do you think happened? Do you think I personally feel like summer happened? Do you know that school was out uh, officially and people, the weather got warm and people just wanted to enjoy themselves? That's part of it. The other part is that um, when you start doing the mathematics, you automatically know that there's going to be about 20% of the population who are simply going to say, you know what, not problem to me. I don't care. Uh, call them cynical spreaders. Call them whatever you want. Right. Okay, That's across the board. You're always going to find 20% who disagree with anything. Exactly. Which unfortunately puts us at a point where instead of 60% of regular contact, we've got to kind of go back down to about 40%. Yeah. It's like, Argh. so what ends up happening is you have all this lovely heat, all this lovely weather. People want to get out. People want to do something. They're getting fatigued of all of this. And more importantly, in comparison to other places in the world, British Columbia has been doing a really fantastic yeah. job. So why not, you know, reward ourselves, which is really fine. Where it starts to get dangerous, okay, is that when not, it's just not the cynical spreaders as they like to be called right now, but we start getting into people who are unintentionally doing unsafe behaviors. And the reason I say it that way is that there are people who used to do this for HIV and it actually sustained and kept the HIV going within the community for a very, very long time. And this is what I fear is going to happen with COVID, is that people are simply going to say, well, you know what, it's not going to affect me, even though I know it exists, and I know that there is a risk to other people, I'm not going to follow through with that, because, you know, that's just what I want to do. And so it's no longer even being cynical about it, it's purposefully adopting unsafe behaviors, just for the sake of doing it. Do you think the message is getting through, though? Because like, it feels like everything turned a couple of weeks ago, ever since the BC Day Long Weekend, and the messaging has changed. Do you think that's getting through? I think what is happening right now is people have turned off on COVID-19. And you would expect to see that when you're starting to get into the summer. Um, And unless you have something that's truly attached to you that poses a risk for COVID-19, which would be schools, which would be elderly relatives, which would be those who may be at higher risk, because we haven't really heard much about the people who are between the ages of 20 and 50 really coming down with severe infections. We need to have more of those stories to be able to get people to understand. Um, They just walked away and decided to go and do their own thing. All right, more to come on that. Jason, thank you.
It was a pleasure. That's Jason Tetro, infectious disease expert, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, warning that, you know what, we're still deep in the first wave. We've got to get this thing tamped down before we start worrying about the second wave, which even though all the people in charge are already worrying about the second wave too. Uh, Part of the, of course, first wave and the kind of increasing cases we've had is people generally socializing too much. We're at 70% or so of our contacts when we need to be at about 60, 65%. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking this morning about what's going on in Ottawa. The fact that Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday announced the proroguing of Parliament and how that actually ends everything that's kind of going on there. It suspends, you know, the what's going on in Parliament, and then it also gets rid of uh, all the legislation that was on waiting to be passed and ends all the committee work and everything that was being done at that time, including uh, a lot of the work that was being done to investigate things like We Charity. So we want to talk more about other things that are also going to now fall by the wayside. Joining us is Stephen Chase, Global Mail journalist in Ottawa. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. So there's a lot of these committees we know that their work is coming to an end. Which other ones are you concerned about? Well, uh, it's the concerns are being raised by the opposition parties, but the opposition parties are concerned, obviously, about three committees that were investigating the We Charity controversy, including the, the Finance Committee, the Ethics Committee, and the Government Operations Committee. Now, these ones, uh, everything they're doing stops. And, of course, without a daily question period, the committees were the only place where the opposition could really uh, ask hard questions and also shine a spotlight on the concerns they have about the We Charity controversy. As well, we had a special committee investigating the crisis in Canada-China relations. And because it's a special committee that was basically created by a vote in the House of Commons, it just disappears. It's gone. So if, they, if we want to bring that back, if the government wants to bring that back, if the opposition wants to bring that back, they have to vote it back into existence. So basically this basically means a, probably a six-week break, maybe even nine weeks, in, in terms of the efforts by the opposition parties to ask tough questions about the We Charity controversy and also about what's happening with our our Canada-China relationship. So like theoretically, as you point out, they could all start them again, but you're so far behind at that point, right? Well, it's certainly a six-week disruption. And of course, nothing starts on schedule. They have to reconstitute the committees. They have to uh, figure out who's going to be on each committee. They have to have all these, there's all this housekeeping that has to go on. So really, it's not really just a six-week break. Uh, It disrupts the opposition efforts to sort of ask questions or do anything for probably nine or ten weeks because nothing gets going right away when when Parliament resumes. Now, the committee that you mentioned there, the Canada-China Relations, is that one that the opposition parties are highlighting as well? Yes, and in fact, it's one that the Liberal government did not want to be created. In fact, they voted against it. But because we're in a minority government, uh, the opposition can outvote the government when it wants to. And they outvoted it last last fall to create this committee. They were concerned about what's been going on with China, with the very increasingly aggressive uh, actions by China. And they wanted to probe what's happening with our relationship. And of course, the fate of the two uh, two Michaels, who are, uh, have been locked up by China for more than 600 days. So they've been using that committee to draw attention to it, and as well, the, the plight of Hong Kong and the, and the democratic crisis in Hong Kong, where, of course, 300,000 Canadians live. Right. And they were expecting to hear from some pretty interesting people coming up. Like, wasn't uh, John McCallum supposed to speak to the committee? Yeah, and that was a particularly interesting one because Mr. McCallum had actually been ignoring their request um, to appear. 
he's uh, he's got himself in a bit of controversy these days because he's gone out and hung out his shingle and has been working for immigration companies who are trying to uh, uh, drum up business. So he he'd been actually a, a sought after witness, and he was they planned to hear from him in September. So of course that's that's off right now as well. Okay, so we know that even the NDP is saying they would like to see this one resurrected, right? The Committee on Canada-China Relations? Yes, but it would require the bloc as well. We don't know what the bloc thinks right now, and it would require all three opposition parties to to outvote the Liberals as they did last fall. Do you see that as likely to happen? I think it's very possible. Uh, The bloc, again, is the wild card. It's always been on this issue. Sometimes they want to uh, examine this issue, and sometimes they don't. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to them, probably. All right. Well, thanks for explaining it to us this morning. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Stephen Chase, Global Mail journalist in Ottawa, highlighting some of the other committees and work being done that will now come to an end because Parliament is being prorogued by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The Special Committee on Canada-China Relations comes to an end. Both the NDP and the Conservative uh, members of the opposition are not happy about the end of that committee. They would like to bring it back. Uh, But as uh, Stephen Chase just pointed out there, they're going to need the help of the bloc to make that happen. But even then, you're talking about six weeks or more, right, before they can actually get back to work. Will it actually happen? We'll have to wait. This is Mornings with Simi. Uh, great song. I watched a show about David Cassidy last night, so that one by request. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago here on the show, we were talking about the rules regarding restaurants, the way they're supposed to take your name and contact information in case they have a case of COVID-19 that pops up. Uh, they have to let you know that, right? Problem is, restaurants aren't always taking people's name and contact info. I ate at a place in Penticton on Sunday where that also did not happen. So what is the public's right to know here? What are restaurants obligated and required to tell you when it comes to COVID-19? It's one of the questions we're going to be exploring on the show today. And joining us now is Nikki Reitmeyer for more on that. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. It's funny because the other side of this too is, you know, what do pubs and restaurants ultimately learn from the government if there has been a COVID-19 outbreak? I mean, there's this story of two Coquitlam pubs who said that they were not given a heads up from the Fraser Health Authority following a possible COVID-19 exposure at one of their establishments. They said, we didn't even know that this had happened until one of our employees, I suppose, just happened to be looking at that list online that says which establishments have had a contact with COVID-19. And the employee went, hold on a second, you know, I work at that place and we are one of four places on this list right now. And I guess contacted the manager and said, what's going on here? The manager went, uh, I haven't even heard from the Fraser Health Authority that this has happened. So it sounds like there's a lack of communication on both sides from the government to these restaurants and from these restaurants ultimately to patrons. Yeah, it is a weird one there. So I'm I was on the website last night for the BC Center for Disease Control and I'm looking at the public exposures list and you can go by health authority. So, you know, depending on where you live and sure they'll list the restaurant there. Some of them have multiple violations like that hookah lounge in in Surrey. But then Mm -hmm. I know of other exposures that I've heard kind of anecdotally that don't appear on that list. So I think, well, what happens then? So the person who has COVID-19, do they then tell health officials, oh, I was at all of these places? And then health officials just put that up on the page without telling some of those restaurants that, oh, by the way, you've had an exposure there. That's a really good question. I mean, yeah. At what point 
does this establishment end up on the list? And you know, and how long do they have to remain on that public list? And do they have to have a responsibility in turn to let patrons know? I mean, I know that public notification doesn't happen in all cases, only when officials are not able to identify and contact everyone who may have been exposed. So as a restaurant, it's a courtesy that you would say to your patrons or post a sign, or maybe you put something on the internet that says, we've had a case of COVID-19 here, and we'll be closing for X amount of time in order to do a cleaning of the establishment. But again, public notification doesn't need to happen only if the government hasn't been able or the, the BCCDC hasn't been able to go through and identify everybody who might have been possibly exposed. Yeah, so this is a tricky one. Like, Nikki, would you want to be told? Like, do you check that list regularly or do you wait for somebody to contact you and tell you that maybe you were somewhere where there was a COVID-19, you know, a case? Look, honestly, up until this moment, I didn't even know that this list existed, that you could find this list. I just happened to be looking around this morning online and said, okay, that's where that public list is, where you can see, you know, which restaurants or at least some of the restaurants where where COVID-19 cases have occurred. I mean, I'm again, I'm not sure if this is a conclusive list or not. So I guess it's it's tricky because, you know, you would want to know places where you possibly have been to yeah. see if you know you you are at risk but is does that determine whether or not i would go to that place in future well i mean i would i, I don't want it to stigmatize a restaurant by any mm-hmm. means so you know i would be cautious of saying you know i'm i'm not going to go to that place because there was a covid-19 case at one point in time because i don't think that that is a healthy reflection of what a restaurant but, may be or how clean they are but if you go to a place and then find out later on oh yeah you know there was a case there and they never told anybody how would you feel about that i wouldn't feel very good about exactly. it exactly so I, I think there is a bit of a um a, a gap here in terms of the information and the way it is provided to people as we're apparently going out and socializing more and going to restaurants more i think there needs to be a better way of letting people know if there are cases absolutely at least let the public know because Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a massive public concern and people, you know, are being cautious, I think, in most cases of you know, kind of where they go and who they interact with. I should say, you know, I think that we're being cautious of where we go and, and who we interact right. with. And you want to know at the end of the day, you know, have I been somewhere that should make me more, um, even more on, on a high alert? Yes. Be extra careful. Oh, I, you know, I was... That I was at that place the other day. And, and as exactly. a result, even though I haven't received an email or a call about it, you know, maybe I should just be laying low for the next 14 days anyways. Exactly. So we're going to be talking about this later. That case that Nikki mentioned, uh, there is uh, a restaurant in Coquitlam that says they found out that they had had a COVID-19 exposure in their restaurant after they saw it on the public exposure list and nobody gave them the heads up that this had happened. Like you'd think they'd want to close down, right? And do some deep cleaning and all that. So thank you for that, Nikki. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Amy. Now, if we're going to be going out to restaurants and eating and we want to feel safe about that whole situation, then we need to know if there is a case of COVID-19 that somebody will let us know. Conversely, you'd like to think somebody will let the restaurants know too. 
Apparently, that's not always the case. Two pubs in Coquitlam say they didn't even know there had been a COVID-19 exposure at their establishments until after the notices had been posted online. Wanted to find out more about this. So joining us is Owen Coomer, the operations manager of Tap House Coquitlam. Owen, thank you for being here. No worries. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Well, tell us what happened. So basically, August 11th, I'm on my computer in the afternoon, and um, I get a text from uh, my head chef saying that one of his friends that works in the industry noticed that we just happened to be on the Fraser Health um, notice board, and uh, or the portal, as they, they like to call it, and um, he ended up showing me the message, and I'm like, oh my god, I, I don't know anything about it, yada, 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 and it just became instantly like, go into damage control mode, try to get as much information as I possibly can, and so forth, um, and that's kind of where it started, literally 10 days after the apparent uh, low-risk exposure. So that is so bizarre, because like, I continually check these lists, too, and if people don't realize that, they can go to the BC Centre for Disease Control website, click on public exposures, and they can get an idea of what's been happening in their community. So did you, like, was it a customer? Was it an employee? Did you have any idea at that point? Um, well, uh, for me, I knew that instantly it was not a staff member, because obviously we're constantly checking to make sure that any anybody that happens to be even remotely sick, I mean, we ended up saying, like, just stay home. Like, if you have any 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 qualms whatsoever, we'd rather not be exposing any staff or guests or anything like that. So I knew that within that time period, not one of my staff members at either location had actually been uh, at any point in time had been tried to, you know, possibly have COVID. So I knew it was like, okay, this could, uh, has to be a guest, I'm, I'm assuming, right. um, or possibly a third-party delivery driver or any of that kind of stuff. So... So what happened then? Did you phone health officials? Like, yeah, what did you do? So basically, as soon as this happened, I ended up calling like the 811, and then I called the Fraser Health uh, Authority numbers, that I and I tried to kind of go back and forth as to where or who I was supposed to call, and unfortunately what ended up happening was it pushed past the 430 mark, uh, and they shut down at 430. So it instantly... It was it was just leave a message after the beep kind of thing. Like I couldn't get a hold of an actual individual, so I ended up just emailing uh, somebody that I worked with with the Fraser Health that had been there about a month and a half prior, that um, just wanted to go with our COVID procedures and our policies and so on, and were very pleased and gave us an you know A plus rating. So I just sent an email to her to say, hey, is it possible that I can get some information? What do I do? What do you want us to do? How can we help? Blah blah blah. blah. And of course. Uh, by that time, I just said, to hell with it, let's just call all the guests that we had on that specific day and just let them know as best as we can. Well, so. yeah, is it the, that's what I was wondering. Is it the health authority supposed to get that information from you so they can then contact Trace? Well, bottom line is what's strange is that, you know, the provincial government regulates that we have to have somebody that greets every single customer that comes in the door every minute of the day that we're open now yeah. and to collect the name, number, email address, what time they were in, and then bring them to a table. I mean, there's all added costs to that, but that name and numbers and all that stuff that I have registered and I had for that day, not not a single person has ever asked for that list from the Fraser Health Authority, even to this day. You know, Owen, what drives me crazy about that is that I've been to restaurants where they don't ask for it, and I've yes. had to ask them to take my information because I want them to be able to contact me if there's a case of COVID-19. Well, ironically, I was at a pub yesterday after I left my establishment, and they didn't ask for my name and number, and they didn't have a host at the door. So it's, it's very frustrating, especially for places that are doing above and beyond, yeah. you know, the, the actual recommended, um, you know, thing for the provincial government. Right? So then, Owen, when, did somebody ever get back to you? 
so finally on Friday, I ended up calling, and again, for the number of times that I've tried to email and so on, uh, I found somebody that was on call as one of the health authorities. And, you know, they apologized, and they just said that if we thought it was such a big deal, we would have sent somebody or you would have heard from us. Um, but ultimately, they are only based on going to places if there's a major complaint or any of that kind of stuff, but also that... Um, their workforce has been cut in half. So they're obviously very behind. And, I mean, I think that the report came out on Thursday that said that uh, they were going to hire 500 more people just to do right. contract tracing. Like, I mean, I'm not denying that I, I feel bad for these people. I mean, they're doing everything they possibly can. It's just it would be nice in that courtesy to have been contacted prior to be basically blown up on social media as well as the province and the sun and all this other stuff because, obviously, I have to worry about, you know, HR and, and my oh. staff and who's wondering. But... Up until yesterday, I finally got an email in the afternoon from so the Fraser Health Authority. Eight days later. Uh, well, no, this would be 17 days later at the time. Holy moly. Okay. It happened August 1st. So we didn't find out until 10 days later that we were on the list. But up until yesterday, that is when I finally got something from the Fraser Health in regards to this. But again, everybody assumes that this happened yesterday. I mean, it's already passed. It's way past, yeah. And yet, you know, obviously it's been detrimental to our business, right? So, Okay, so I like I would have wanted to know. If I had eaten at your place on August 1st, I would have wanted to know. Yeah. Did, did you obviously informed all those customers? Yes, we did. We were the ones that called. And so what did Fraser Health say when they finally got back to you? Um, that, again, they apologized. They're, 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 they're thankful that, um, you know, that we're, you know, helping working with them and that... Uh, Again, if they, were, they thought it was that big of a, a deal or an issue, they would have uh, contacted uh, our company or, or come in. Uh, they just said that um, they were happy with our safety protocols and our, our, how we deal with COVID and our regulations and things like that, that, we, that they're happy with it, right. that they're okay. So they trusted you and they figured you were doing a good job. Well, exactly. And to be perfectly fair, uh, based on the circumstances that arise, I mean, uh, nobody else got sick. Nobody else got yeah. exposed. So, I mean, in some sort of vein, I mean, clearly they're, what we're doing and what they recommend clearly works for, you know, right. further exposures. So there is obviously some kudos to them in that regard. But. I think, oh, and that's the interesting part about all this is that there's a, there's a certain level of trust here, right? Yeah. They're clearly, they put, their belief is, I think, they put into place all these procedures, and if you follow the procedures, then everything is fine. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you're doing that, but it's also very difficult to know what to do when there is well, a problem. at the end of the day, like I said, I mean, if, if I, have, I have cameras in my place, I mean, I could have, if I had any information whatsoever, I could, you know, do my own detective work. I could have found out, oh, it was a skip the, a skip the dishes delivery driver, and there was only one person that deals with that, or it was this server or bartender that may have, you know, been exposed, then I could probably have sent, you know, that staff member home, you know, for two weeks just to be a, you know, precautionary or, or I mean, again, yeah. everybody was wondering and asking me questions as, did, did I serve this person? What's going on? Like, what's happening? This and that. I mean, I have no answers. I still don't have any answers to this day. So, you know, it's just all speculative. Right. And, but the fortunate part is that it's past the time that there would have been a problem. Oh, exactly. You okay. know, which is what, but again, it's what's frustrating is that we didn't find out about this until 10 days later. That's crazy. So what could have, what happens if it was me? I mean, I wasn't there during that time, but I, I mean, I'm, well, if it's a full-time employee that, that you know, sees yeah. the most amount of customers, uh, you know, it's just, it's it's very frustrating and, and maddening in that regards, you know. Okay, so you said this has impacted business? Oh, t- tremendously. 
you know, oh. it's not because they don't think, like, we're getting a lot of great, um, you know, great stuff on social media, and everybody's very supportive and things like that, but that's not translating to dollars. It's like, bottom line is, is that people think, oh, I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to go there. You know, it's, it, you know, right. and I mean, obviously at a certain point in time, you know, we'll flip the, the corner, but yes, it definitely has impacted our business, and even, you know, I'd hate to to be anybody that might have the word tapos in their name because I would assume that, you know, people just yeah. assume that maybe it's just a bunch of chain restaurants. I mean, we only have the two places, but still, I mean, I've heard that the village tapos, uh, you know, got affected slightly by what's happened because everybody just assumes that we're part of the same organization. All right. Listen, thanks so much for your time on this, Owen, and best of luck. Yeah, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. That's Owen Coomer, the Tap House Coquitlam Operations Manager. Frustrated, as you can tell. They're doing all the right things, though. That's the important thing. There. So listen, if you're in the vicinity, go. Go to Tap House Coquitlam. They are still very concerned about your safety. They are doing all the right things. It sounds like they could use a little help. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about heading back to school, shall we? Still fraught with so many concerns. Parents say they don't know enough. Students say they are concerned. Teachers are worried about what their classrooms are going to look like. Well, this is the week that school districts are supposed to be submitting their plans to the Ministry of Education. In fact, they're supposed to do that by August 21st. Ministry has like a week to look over the plans, make sure they're sufficient, make suggestions, and then the plans, you know, will be made public and parents will find out more. Except some school districts are going ahead and letting, you know, people know what the plans are ahead of time, which is great because everybody needs more information. Surrey is a very good example of this. The things that they have uh, put forward show that they're going to split everybody up. They've got the students in senior grades, 10, 11, 12 in one group, 8 and 9 in another. Uh, They're going to cap learning groups at 60 for grades 8 and 9, 30 for the senior students. There's a whole bunch of stuff they're going to be doing, but we thought let's talk about that now with the help of Stephanie Higginson, the BC School Trustees Association uh, president. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Simi. Nice to be here. Well, what do you think about the Surrey plan? You know, to be honest, I, I, I've seen um, some high-level uh, information about it, but I haven't had a chance to dig too deep into it. It was released yesterday, which was my birthday. Oh, happy late so birthday. Took, Sorry. It took a little bit of time yesterday. <laughs> so, But what I am seeing, you know, to what you said was uh, what we've said all along is that uh, schools will take this plan, this framework that was developed by the province. They will keep health and safety in mind when they're developing student schedules. We know, we know across the province it will look different uh, according to, you know, the, the community's needs. And that uh, appears to be what Surrey has done. We know that Surrey is quite a dense school uh, school district with very, very large high schools. So in order to be able to operate those schools safely and have kids in as much as possible, they've come up with a really creative solution. Okay. And what do you feel, how do you feel about the mask mandate that came Monday from the Ministry of Education that, you know, for staff, middle and secondary students in high traffic areas, they're going to have to wear masks? Well, I think that that, you know, is in line with what we're seeing um, happen slowly across the country as we learn to adjust uh, our needs to this virus. And so I think having uh, students and staff in high traffic areas where physical distancing isn't uh, isn't able to be maintained, uh, wear masks is in line with what we see outside the schools as well. And so that just helps keep that consistent. Right. Talking about the physical distancing there, I was reading how in Ontario, uh, some communities have also offered up like closed community centers and recreation facilities to schools in case they need to spread the students out more. Do you think we've got enough room to do that physical distancing in schools? 
I think that they've come up with a way that perhaps that's not necessary by grouping the kids together in small groups and by having schedules operate differently. So, you know, this just goes back to what we said day one is that we really have to think about schools differently. So we're not talking about throwing the doors open and having 1,500 kids walk into the school at the same time with these learning groups that we're seeing be developed and starting to see school district plans come out. Uh, you're seeing that there's smaller groups of students and you'll probably see staggered start times and staggered lunch times as we're seeing with Surrey. So kids, you know, a school that's built for for 1,500 or 2,000 will have 500 kids walking in, in in different areas at once. And then 10 minutes later, another 500 kids coming in, in, right. a, in di- from different areas. So I, I don't know if we'll need that. Ontario is much denser, but I also know that we need our recreation facilities to be running for members in our communities. They're very important parts of our communities as well. So if we can maintain the schools and operate them safely, then hopefully that means that we can open our rec centers up for families and communities and members of the community to utilize them. Uh, Now, Surrey, we know, has a a number of schools that are quite large, right, with Mm -hmm. 1,500 or so students. Is that the case in other school districts as well? Is that going to be a challenge for some of those larger schools? I think that uh, those larger schools, we're going to see uh, more and more plans come out that look something similar to Surrey. But we, you know, I, I, I've heard more about districts going to the quartermaster across the province than I have heard about people having to have uh, limiting time in school. But this is the week we're going to start to see those plans coming out and we'll start to hear how uh, senior leaders in the districts have, you know, really developed uh, learning with safety in mind, safety for staff and students, and then ultimately that would be safety for the communities they're in. Do you think this week will go a long way towards making parents feel better? I think maybe by next week, because not every district is going to be releasing their plans early like Surrey did. Uh, some of them are going to wait to get um, to get their approval from the ministry beforehand. I know that in June there was some some school districts who submitted plans, and then they had to go back to the drawing board a little bit, change some things because of uh, feedback from the ministry. So districts like that may be feeling a little bit gun-shy and putting it out in public until they know they have the stamp of approval. But my hope is what we'll see um, is that when we see people or districts like Surrey making these adjustments that that do have even smaller groupings and do have students in different types of learning situations, that that will help people make that adjustment that they need to make in their mind. It's really hard to think about school different because we just haven't organized them differently for many, 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 many years, right? So. Uh, this my my hope is that this will help people start to be able to 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 think about the schools differently and understand how this can be done safely. All right, more to come. Stephanie, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That is Stephanie Higginson, president of the BC School Trustees Association, talking about the plans that districts are coming up with. Yep, Surrey's been great. They've put it out there, um, and they're going to be submitting that to the ministry. Other districts will be doing the same, but in Surrey, they've kind of taken that step. They have such a large school district, uh, getting feedback from people on that as well. So there's more to come on that. If you're a parent, teacher, student, want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about wearing masks when you are out and about. You've been hearing in the news about a local grocery store on Main Street here in Vancouver that has decided to get rid of their policy requiring customers to wear masks in the store, but not for the reasons that you might think. So joining us now is David Lee Quinn, the owner of East West Market on Main Street. David, thank you for being here. Yes, thanks for having me on your show. Now, why are you getting rid of this policy? Well, it's becoming too uh, costly. Um, I get a, a little bit of 
backlash from some of the customers uh, in that wearing masks can be harmful for your health. Uh, they said build up CO2, and some of them will say that it's it's the right to to shop anywhere with or without the mask, and it, it was getting too confrontational. So too many people, too many of your customers were saying they didn't want to wear a mask, and they were being what angry about it. Yeah, well, not too many, but. Uh, a minority of them, most most of the customers are good, but um, it, it got to the point where one customer nearly became violent, and I, I didn't want my staff to be in that situation. And so would so, you say, David, that right now most people do wear a mask in your store? Yes, yes. And are you hoping that they'll just continue doing that? I hope so because um, we all have to do our part to 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 help uh, you know slow down this pandemic, um, and, and it, it, it's very simple. Take precautions, and yeah. we will be okay. But it's it's just a small minority that I I, I don't know what is in their head. I know that must be so hard for you, though, because you've got this community business, all these like loyal customers who come to you, and then so they just want to yes. what cause trouble and be mean for for just it's not even your staff's fault. That's right, and um, you know we we have been you know we're not even asking them to buy a mask. We've been given masks away, and it it was so costly. It, you know, it, it runs into. Thousands. I think we spent at least ten thousand dollars giving free masks away, and still some of them will not want to put it on. Now, are you are your staff all wearing masks and everything else in the stores? You're taking precautions. Yes, we we have done that from the beginning. Um, we, we we once a pandemic came out, we we all were wearing masks. Um, we were you know, sanitizing our hands and asking every customer to sanitize their hands and things like that. You know, we're part of the community and we have to help, you know, cure the situation. And, and, and that's the way I see it. Yeah. So what yeah, is... And if, if we all have the same mindset, we will lick this thing, you know, yeah. Very quickly. Yeah. That's true. So David, what is your message then to customers out there about coming to your store? I think um think of your fellow human being. You know, wear the mask, you may not have it, but it also protects you. You may not know you have it. Um you may be asymptomatic and you could give it to others. So it's a simple thing is wearing a mask and I, I wish the government could just you know put out a, a law there that says everybody should be wearing masks and uh, I, I figure in a, in a couple of months we will be okay well hopefully yeah hopefully yeah. most of your customers will listen to that David but listen thank you for being on the show with us today 
Thank you very much. And good luck. Best of luck. That is David Lee Quinn, owner of East West Market on Main Street. They did have a policy that required masks to come in their store, and they were providing them for free to people if somebody came in and didn't have one. Uh, And they said they're getting rid of the policy now because they have had instances where people are too confrontational, uh, too aggressive with staff. And they said people, there are some minority of people. He said yes, but still they've had a number of instances where that has been the case. And he said he just, it's not good for his staff. And of course it's not good for, who does that? Who behaves like that? What is your point in berating some poor staff member in a store who was just asking you to put on a mask to protect them? How is that so difficult? I don't understand that. And so he's hoping that people will listen and the majority of people will go ahead and do that anyway. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.